Thank you for joining us for Sound Reasoning with Christian apologist and minister Perseus Poku of Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's program will educate, train, and empower you to defend your Christian faith with confidence. Perseus has his bachelor's in history and a master's degree in apologetics. We hope you enjoy this time of equipping so that you can answer questions to defend your Christian faith effectively. Now here's Perseus Poku on Sound Reasoning. Welcome to Sound Reasoning. I'm your host, Perseus Poku. 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds us that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We are confident as believers that our Bible uh, came out of the nature of God. It, It is from God himself, and what we have deposited to us it has been authenticated by the creator of the universe. And as part of our duties as disciples or as believers, we must be engaged in not just reading the word of God, but studying the word of God. And especially uh, as Paul reminds us in Corinthians that as Christians, we must position ourselves to demolish or refute any anti-God Uh, arguments or philosophies. All of us have this mandate, not just the pastor, not just the trustee, not just the deacons, not just the elders, but all of us as Christians that believe in Christ, we must position ourselves to give each man or woman an answer, a reason for the hope that lies within them. And for this episode, I really wanted to touch on some of the uh, issues, not an exhaustive uh, segment, but uh, partial information dealing with how we got the Bible. Uh, There's nothing greater in terms of literature, in terms of composition, than God's Word, the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And to help us to better understand how we got the Bible, the Bible that we all hold in our hands, uh, the Bible that uh, we all love to underline and highlight. How did we get this Bible and and, and how can we articulate um, this historical aspect to those that ask us questions uh, concerning the Bible and the scriptures? So to help us uh, with today's segment, uh, we have with us our friend uh, so, uh, from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, Brother uh, uh, Jones, uh, who is... Um, the uh pro- not just a professor but for pre- professor of family ministries a southern baptist theological seminary so brother jones how are you today i'm doing well how are you doing i am doing well i'm doing well uh, thank you for being with us and so my first question is how did you uh c- come about composing this book on how we got the bible well, really, I would say if uh, I were to kind of trace back to where it began, the book began in my freshman year of college, uh, not the writing of it, but uh, what made me want to write a book like this. And uh, I'd been raised uh, in a church in which I'd been told very simplistic answers uh, to why we know the Bible is God's word and that uh, this belief that uh, uh, in the churches I was raised in that the 
King's Version was the only Bible that anybody could use, all sorts of things like this and very simplistic answers. And when I got to college and began to uh, understand the New Testament, understand the history of the New Testament, began to take classes in history uh, and in biblical studies, I began to realize that so many uh, of the things I had been told about the Bible weren't actually correct, uh, and that the answers I'd been given for how we know the Bible is God's Word uh, were ones that were really didn't hold up uh, when examined under uh, the microscope of history, we might say. And it really caused for me a very deep crisis in my faith in which I was struggling to believe and uh, really was uh, just grasping at all sorts of threads as to how I could believe. And so I, I, when, I, when it came uh, to a particular time that a publisher uh, approached me about thinking about the Bible, and, you know, what would it be to do something that is about the Bible and the history, I jumped at that because I wanted to write precisely the book that I felt like I needed and didn't have all the way back in my freshman year of college. And so that's what uh, I endeavored to do in this book, um, is to write exactly that book that would have answered the questions I had. Because here's the deal, is that when I started facing those questions, uh, I realized over time as I began reading that uh, the questions I was asking, the questions I was wrestling with really weren't questions uh, that were were incredibly difficult. difficult to answer. Uh, But it was just rather, I didn't know where to find the answers to those questions. So at me at that time, it's these were insurmountable questions, things that nobody had ever thought of before. Well, what I found out as I began to read and began to research, began to study over about a year or so, is that, wow, all these questions I'm having about the Bible are questions that other people have asked these questions before, and they've found answers to these questions in the past. And that's part of what set me on a new path towards studying the history of the Bible, but also toward renewing my faith in the Mm. authenticity and integrity of the Bible. Mm. And if you're listening, I'm hoping that that touched you in a certain way in in terms of getting excited about the scriptures and causing you to investigate and study God's holy word. Now, my next question deals with uh, some of the terms we use associated with the scriptures. Uh, The word infallible, what does that mean? Well, the word infallible means that it is unable to err or unable to make a mistake, not liable to error would be another way of saying that. So uh, it comes from some Latin terminologies that uh, means it's, it, it's not capable of error. Now, that's an important word because uh, the, for two reasons the first reason it's an important word. It's an important word because it lets us know not merely that the Bible is without error, but that it's incapable of, of being in error. Mm. Uh, and, and that's important because when we speak of, of this, we are reminding ourselves the Bible comes from God himself, and because God cannot lie, neither can his word lie. That's what we're in essence saying by the word infallible. Amen. But I want us to make sure we understand the definition of that other reason. There are other people over the past two or three decades who have tried to stretch the meaning of infallible uh, to mean something less than that, which means it just doesn't, the Bible doesn't fail in its purpose. So in other words, its purpose is to give us spiritual truth and salvation, and it doesn't fail in those, but these people would say it can be in error when it comes to history or in error when it comes to science. But what I want to understand is that twisting of the meaning of the word infallible. That's not what the word historically means. What the word historically means is that the scriptures are not capable of being in error, not capable of being fallible. Thank you so much. 
Now, what about the word inerrant? Well, inerrant is a word that uh, is a more recent term. This is not a term that has historically used in the church. It goes only back to the 19th century or so. Uh, but it's an important word as well precisely because of what I described earlier, because of, of this kind of, uh, kind of uh, murkiness around the word infallible that has emerged in certain circles, then Christians have begun in the, in the 20th century in particular to emphasize this word inerrant, simply to try to emphasize what it is we mean when we speak of the nature of Scripture. And what the word inerrant means simply is not in error. There are no errors in the Bible. So when we speak of the Bible being inerrant, we are speaking of it being without and so that's a kind of a secondary term that has emerged that is an important term to clarify what we mean. So we can kind of think of it this way. Infallible is a great word uh, that it's not able to err. But to clarify what we mean when we say that the Scripture is infallible, we say also the word inerrant to say this particular type of infallibility of which we are speaking, which is a Bible that does not have any errors in it, in anything that it affirms, declares, or reports. Amen. Amen. Now, um, many of us are familiar with the word canon, and uh, we hear it every now and then in theological cir circles, even inside the church. What does it mean when we talk about the canon of the Bible? Well, the word canon actually comes from uh, a river reed, uh, and you may think, what on earth does this have to do with the Bible? Well, you'll understand it has everything to do with the Bible. Here's what would happen is there were these river reeds, uh, which were these kind of tubular uh, river reeds that uh, the ancient Greeks and Romans would, would cut them to particular lengths and use them to measure buildings, uh, would measure out things or measure heights or widths of things. Happens over time is that this word canon uh, that referred to the measurements of buildings or the measurements, the kind of that measuring stick that's used, came to refer to the group of texts that say measures the church's faithfulness to Jesus Christ. So it's, it's an authoritative measurement, we might say. And so it's important this term, even though the term doesn't get used for the scriptures, the third, fourth, fifth centuries, it kind of grew into usage for the scriptures at that time, it is used uh, to describe the scriptures because they are the measure of the church's faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And so what we're meaning when we speak of the canon of scripture are those texts that are authoritative for the people of God. We're describing them as the canon, the texts of the Old and New Testaments that are, that are authoritative for the people of God. That's what we mean when we use the word canon. Excellent, excellent. Um, my other question I have is, every now and then when you're looking at a particular Bible translation, uh, they may have in a subscript uh, footnote section or even in the middle section for cross-references this, um, uh, this word, Septuagint. What is mm -hmm. the Septuagint? Well, it's often abbreviated LXX is how it is, which is the, the Roman numerals for 70 uh, at that point is how it's often uh, abbreviated. Now, what the Septuagint does is it is or what it is, is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Old Testament. 
this translation of the Hebrew Old Testament was done a couple of centuries before the time of Jesus. And so in some cases, it may represent uh, an earlier and more reliable reading than we have uh, in the Hebrew Old Testament. But most of all, the Septuagint is important because of the fact that it was the Bible of many of the earliest Christians. Of course, Jesus uh, used the Hebrew Testament, and and so did his initial apostles. But remember that the gospel quickly grew to reach all sorts of people groups, and, and people groups outside of the Jewish people around uh, Judea and and uh, Galilee and those areas like that. They didn't know Hebrew, so they only knew the Greek language, and so they began to use the uh, Greek Old Testament. In fact, about 70% of the quotations from the Old Testament in the New Testament are actually taken from the Septuagint, this Greek translation of the Old Testament from a couple of centuries before the time of Jesus. Thank you. If you're just joining us, we are on air with uh, Brother Timothy Paul Jones, uh, who is a professor at um, uh, one of the greatest seminaries in this nation. And so he's helping us to better understand the New Testament and those things associated with the New Testament. While we are on the New Testament, or while we are on the Bible, rather, um, the term apocrypha, what is it and uh, what should uh, Christians do with it? Well, the apocrypha, the, the very word means hidden things, is what the word apocrypha, it's a Greek word that means hidden things. Uh, that's applied to these texts later on uh, in, the, in the early Christian eras. But, the, but what that is, it's a group of books that um, were bundled with the Old Testament, we might say. So let's kind of back up and think through the big picture of, of what happened with these books. Remember I said earlier that the Septuagint was translated a couple of centuries before the time of Jesus, the Old Testament, into Greek. But you see, the people that translate the Septuagint weren't just wanting to get the Old Testament. They were trying to gather together all the Jewish writings, the traditional writings of the Jewish people, all these writings into, uh, in, into together and to get those into the Greek language so that they could be more widely known. Well, what happens in that is that uh that that these that this includes not only the books of the Old Testament but also they included there all these Jewish traditional writings and as i said earlier early Christians started using the Septuagint as their version of the Old Testament because it was in Greek and that's what most people read and understood in the first centuries of Christianity so many people began to assume and and to uh, to use the scriptures as if these texts were part of the inspired Old Testament scriptures, and uh, and so there's a guy named Jerome, and Jerome when he uh, translates the Bible from Greek into Latin uh, and from Hebrew into Latin in what's called the Latin Vulgate, he clearly identified these extra books. He says these don't belong in the Bible; they should not determine any of our doctrines of the church is what he said, but I'm going to include them because they're familiar and they're traditional and they ought to be read uh, to understand the world, to understand uh, what God's workings with the Jewish people, but they're not really inspired or part of the Bible. So Jerome, I think he was right on that. But there was another guy 
uh, named Augustine from uh, from around the same time period or similar time period. And Augustine actually disagreed with that assessment. Augustine said that all these books that were in the Septuagint, even those that were these Jewish traditional writings that had been bundled in uh, with those, he said all of them ought to be treated as the inspired word of God. I think Augustine, although Augustine of Hippo was right about many things, he was wrong about that. And so Christians began gradually to use these extra books uh, of the Bible. Now, here's what's important. The most important part is that Jesus did not view these books as inspired. How do we know that Jesus didn't view these books as as inspired? So you got to track with me here. We know that Jesus did not view those books as inspired, did not treat those as scriptural, because in the latter, the last chapter of the book, the Gospel according to Luke, Jesus refers to the Old Testament, and he refers to it this way. He says, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now, that threefold division of the Old Testament applies only to, it's only arranged that way in the Hebrew Old Testament, is the only one that is arranged in that threefold division of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. So here's what that tells us. The Bible that Jesus used and the Bible that Jesus saw as the words of his Father was not this Septuagint with the extra text. It was rather the Hebrew text that was organized in those three parts, that is the Bible that Jesus used. And so what uh, what happened in the Protestant Reformation and later than that is Christians began to realize that these books were never part of the Hebrew Old Testament, were never part of the scriptures used by the Jewish people, and therefore they weren't used by Jesus either, and they began to uh, to teach, as I believe is true, that the, the the Christians, we should take our canonical cues, not from tradition, not from St. Augustine, but rather we should take our canonical cues from Jesus himself, and that we should use the Bible that Jesus used, which is the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, as we have it in our Protestant Bibles. Now, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, both in different ways, actually, but both of them still use these extra books and consider them to be part of their Bible. Bibles. Though, as I said, the Eastern Orthodox Church uses them in a slightly different way than the Roman Catholic Church. But Roman Catholic Church asserts that these books are as inspired as the rest of the Bible and includes these in their Bibles still today. But I do not believe we should. And the reason I do not believe we should is because that was not the Bible as Jesus used it. And we should take our canonical cues, not from tradition, not from uh, the Septuagint, but rather from Jesus himself. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that uh, concise clarification. Um, My next question deals again with the Apocrypha. Now, are these the same as the so-called laws books of the Bible? No, it's very different in that. So the, when people speak of the lost books of the Bible, they're usually talking at that point about actually early Christian writings uh, that were most of them from other sects, other groups that claimed to be Christian, but were really heretical, uh, heretical groups. So there's these lost gospels, supposedly, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel 
extra, these other gospels. But here's what's crucial and important for us to understand about these supposed lost books of the Bible, is that none of these books were written at a time or in circumstances in which they even could have been traced back to eyewitnesses of the risen Lord Jesus Christ or close associates of those eyewitnesses. And this goes back to our earlier discussion of canon, the New Testament canon. Here was the the standard that early Christians used to determine what books should be considered canonical uh, in the New Testament. They weren't using the word canon, but but in our terms, we can say canonical. It was, can this book be reliably connected back to an eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus Christ or a close associate of one of the eyewitnesses of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The reason the lost gospels were lost, so to speak, is because they could not be traced back reliably to any eyewitness or close associate of an eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so the church rejected those books, and the church did not use those books. And in fact, most of those books came from groups that were heretical, that had heretical beliefs about Jesus Christ, and they were rejected not only because they weren't, couldn't be associated with eyewitnesses, but also because they came from these heretical groups. And so those books, they may tell us interesting things about different things about Christianity in the early of Christianity, but they tell us nothing reliable about Jesus Christ, mm. nothing whatsoever about Jesus Christ that can be relied on as coming from eyewitnesses of the risen Lord Jesus. Brother Jones, thank you so much for sharing with our listeners. Uh, We've been edified tremendously by your scholarly response. Again, this is Brother Timothy Paul Jones, Professor of Family Ministries at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Thank you again, Brother Jones, for being on Sound Reasoning Ministries. And before um, we conclude, how can an individual uh, obtain one of the, the books of How We Got the Bible? Well, the best place to go is to my website, timothypauljones.com, and uh, just go to timothypauljones.com, and uh, you can click on books, and you can find it there, as well as a whole lot of free resources uh, related to apologetics and uh, toward the history of the Bible. Thank you so much again for being on our show, and we'll be in touch. Thank you. It's been great to be with you. Excellent. That's Brother Timothy Paul Jones apologist and professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, expounding uh, his research on the historicity of God's Word and uh, some of the terms that we uh, encounter when we grow in Christ and learn more about the Bible. The scriptures should not be treated lightly. All of us must educate ourselves, which means we must spend time in the scriptures We must meditate. Uh, We must ponder. Uh, We must actualize it, meaning that it's not just enough to say, I believe. Uh, Scripture reminds us that even the devil is a believer, but we must move beyond belief to convictions. We must live out the creeds, and we must uh, live out the principles that the Scriptures uh, espouses to us. So my prayer is that all of you that are listening, would take time out to spend more time with the scriptures. Spend more time availing yourself through God's word to find out his directions for your life, to find out his instructions for your life, and to find out the principles that he will have us to learn. It's my prayer that you all become Bible students, that you seek the word of God daily, that you bind it around your neck, tie it around your finger. 
And please continue to support us financially by visiting our website. God bless you. Thanks for listening to Sound Reasoning with apologist and minister Perseus Poku from Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's lesson has equipped you to share and defend your Christian faith with boldness. Sound Reasoning Ministries offers training in apologetics, biblical studies, and systematic theology. Join in on discussions on Facebook at Sound Reasoning Ministries. For more information about the ministry, to send an email, ask a question, or support the ministry, visit online at srministries.org. That's srministries.org. Listen again next week at this same time. And remember, Titus 1.9 says, Hold firm to the trustworthy message as has been taught so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Sound Reasoning Ministries, srministries.org. I found myself on a ledge three stories high at some condominiums, contemplating my life and struggling to understand my purpose. Have you ever found yourself on the ledge? My name is Billy Yates. I'm a caring father, mentor, and friend. In my new podcast, Billy and the Goat, I share the life-changing events that shaped who I am today to remind you that no matter how far you've fallen, God can help you get up and thrive. Listen now at lifeaudio.com.